Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. June marks the start of rainy season in Miami, and it'll carry on straight till November. We might also call it hurricane season, as this is the time of the year when storm systems are constantly forming out in the ocean and threatening to sweep the shores and tear our lives to shreds. But it's more palatable, and in a way more direct, to just refer to it as rainy season. Life carries on as usual throughout rainy season, but there's a different mood to it. Traffic is a little worse than usual, but people's tempers don't seem to flare up quite so quickly as they do on the brighter, hotter summer days. An evening at home with rain drumming the windows and an occasional wall-rattling sound of thunder adds a cozy vibe to things, a sense of belonging. We're relieved of FOMO, the fear of missing out, because when you do brave the storm and get an Uber and make your way out to a bar during rainy season, it's a lot quieter than usual. People sit on their stools and they lean really close while they talk and the place always feels more intimate for the fact that, well, this is where you are right now, and this is where you're going to stay. And there's something forlorn and lovely about sipping your drink on a weekday night and looking out the window at the downpour, at the fans of rainwater that spike five feet in the air whenever a car drives too close to the curb, and to think, as you're doing so, that even if somebody somewhere was expecting something of you, you would be forgiven for not showing up. There's something absolving about the rainy season, cozy as hell, almost baptismal, it's a time to be alone with yourself, holed up in your office or your apartment or your car or your favorite local coffee shop or bar as the whole world slows down. Satellite services are temporarily suspended and the TV screens at bars all pixelate and go dark. Public places that are usually noisy are suddenly kind of quiet. Everybody looks a little more rested than usual but also, strangely, a little groggier. Conversations are quieter than they are during the winter and fall. All of this rain can cause headaches galore when you're lugging in groceries from your trunk or trying to navigate the ill-tempered and, and slow-moving traffic. But otherwise, when you're off by yourself and watching a movie or reading a book or listening to a podcast with your windows and car doors all getting bathed in the downpour, there's a lovely and distinct kind of seasonal isolation that makes everything feel more resonant. The media we consume feels a little more intimate, like a voice reaching out from the rain to find you in your dry little cozy nook and to join you there and talk for a bit. And so it's my hope today that that's where this podcast finds you, sitting someplace where the rain's hitting the windows, preferably with a drink, where nobody can find you and nothing's expected, and you can just sit around and talk for a bit. When my fa after my mother died, my father was living alone in the apartment they lived in, in a rather pleasant building in Elizabeth. And um, the way he met the woman who was later to become his, I love this word about older people, his girlfriend. <laughs> um, uh, the way he met her was uh, he was looking out his back window, which looked down, he was about on the seventh floor, let's say. And there was a parking area for everybody, and everybody usually used the same slot. And he was standing at the window, and he saw someone pulling into Dr. Horowitz's slot. <laughs> So he raised the window, and a woman got out of her car, and he said, Hey, you're in Dr. Horowitz's slot. <laughs> so she looked up and said, Excuse me? He said, That's Dr. Horowitz's spot. And then he looked at her and he said, You're a good-looking woman. What's your name? He said to her. <laughs>
My friend Rachel is cool, and I love her, but she's being such an asshole. Because I know without any shades of gray that Rachel is a good person. She's curious, generous, good-humored. Rachel is also more of a romantic than she likes to admit. She's the only person I know of my age group who financed her own nose job. She was 23 at the time. The nose was big, and it had a bump along the bridge, and her sincerely self-loathing soliloquies about it at the beginning of high school morphed slowly, beginning in like our, our sophomore year of high school, to a kind of self-deprecating, a sophisticated self-deprecating humor. If she accused somebody of, of telling a lie, for example, they would ask her, you know, what, what are her grounds for calling him a liar, and then she would just sort of, she'd give a sage-like squint, and she would just tap her nostril knowingly. Immediately before her surgery, she got hooked into a Spartan workout regimen and cultivated a physique so harrowingly athletic that when she took to the Miami bar and club scenes across Wynwood and South Beach in one form-fitting dress or another and, and catching the eye of everyone, her head would assume this, this kind of downward tilt of what looked almost like a samurai, like vengeful, and she would move through sidewalks and dance floors and crowds with a, with a predatory kind of conviction, cutting down men and women alike, claiming that she wasn't bisexual, just overdue. And in the space of three or four years, she took up a body count nearing the triple digits. But that was just a fun little spell. Rachel had terrible ugly duckling syndrome, and I think resisted the fact that she wanted a relationship because she didn't think anybody would find her pretty enough for anything but sex. Like, maybe, you know, she's pretty enough to spend a night with but not to bring home or something. She only slowed down with the promiscuity when she had a pretty bad STI scare, following an unprotected threesome with two old college friends. What she'd actually contracted was the clap, but she thought it was gonorrhea, and there was an, uh, something in the news at the time about this potentially incurable strand of gonorrhea that was making its way through millennials a strand that was that would like eat your brain or something and i remember she cried so hard on the phone with planned parenthood that they moved her appointment up a few days but that was a while ago her life is less turbulent now she's a professional and she lives on brickle and save for being single and you know going on five or six six dates a month she lives a pretty routinized life I get a drink with her, you know, a couple times a month, and we recently met at a bar that I frequent on Brickle, the one where I made things awkward by matching with a server on OkCupid, which you can you can hear about in a in a in an episode of the podcast called Overeating, where Rachel told me about a guy that she had just met through Bumble, which is a dating app, and uh, she'd gone out with and she'd fucked him. She's telling me that she's weirded out to be thinking about him so much, to be uh, like actually missing him after only a few encounters. We talk about it a little bit longer, and I wish her some luck, and I tell her to keep me appraised of what's going on. And so she does. After waiting a good 48 hours, she reaches out to the guy, invites him to a pizza place where she gets some amalgam of toppings that sounds really repulsive, but she insists it's delicious. Apparently, while they were in bed after sex, she had been talking for a while about this bizarre pizza that she orders, and she tells me that part of her strategy with bringing that up as the invitation for the next date was to sort of trigger in his memory how, you know, nice and warm the experience of laying around after sex had been. Some It was some bizarre attempt at reverse psychology. I guess. When the dude responds a couple hours later to her invitation, it's with a direct, considerate block of text. He tells her that she's cool and that he had a nice time, but he suggests gently that they go their separate ways. Rachel's upset, naturally, but she takes it well. She's got no shortage of suitors across all of these dating apps, guys whose messages range from, you know, invitations to sex, to kayaking, to happy hour, to Paris. She's got options galore. Life itself, we agree, will move on. And it does. You know, Isaac Singer 
who was born in uh, Poland in, uh, what, about 1915, let's say, um, when he uh, came to America and began to write here, and he was uh, chastised sometimes for his subject because uh, people challenged him and said, why do you write about Jewish whores and Jewish gangsters and Jewish thieves, Jewish pimps? And he said, what should I write about? Portuguese whores? Portuguese thieves? Portuguese pimps? He says, I write about the pimps and the whores I know. Uh, Tolstoy is reputed to have said you could have written you could write War and Peace if you've seen a street fight a few days later Rachel and I meet for drinks and I ask about her situation with the dude uh, you know whether she ever heard from him again and she rolls her eyes and she lifts her drink and she says what a fag which is striking to hear from her but it wouldn't be the first time that I've seen somebody get you know defensively salty about having pursued somebody of the opposite orientation often to disastrous effects so I figured that she's maybe just learned that he's gay or bi or something and she's coping with the discovery and being kind of abrasive about it uh, so so I probe the issue a little and I find that well he's actually he's not gay um, or at least she has no reason to be saying so she just says it because it's what? I guess him being gay would be an explanation for why he doesn't want to go out with her anymore? I ask her why she's saying this all of a sudden, and, and then she just steers the conversation someplace else. And I can see that she's getting self-conscious and realizing that she went a little far with saying that. And then Rachel riffs instead, after invariably circling back to the topic of this dude, on, on what a what a presumptuous piece of shit this dude was to have you know written her that cushiony text in, in such a consoling tone. She says that he wrote it as though she had ever given him reason to suggest that she even wanted to fuck him again. She says to me, all I did was invite him out for a fucking pizza. And what, he thinks I'm trying to start a relationship? Fuck him. Fucking pretentious. Now, Rachel is a STEM wizard, and she prides herself on her reasoning skills, and she gets super bombastic and volatile if you call her out for looking at things from a naive or a slanted perspective. So maybe it, it makes me a bad friend for not throwing down like a hammer of truth, but having passed up the opportunity back then, let me, let me lay it down now, the thing that I should have said to her at the time, which is this. Obviously, if you've been on two giddy dates with somebody, and the second one involved what you're describing as acrobatic sex, and yeah, that person is going to very reasonably assume that you kinda like him. I've never known a man to walk away from a blowjob saying, gee, I wonder if she likes me, especially when the blowjob is bookended by, by invitations to meals. But look, if this is Rachel's self-protective delusion that, that you know she gave no indicators that she's at all interested in this guy, look, it, it is what it is. This is how she protects herself. I'm fine leaving her to do it for now. But it isn't long after this that she meets me again at the aforementioned watering hole for a drink. It's almost 10 p.m., and for the first time in all of our dozen-odd rendezvous on Brickle, across all hours of the night, Rachel, tonight, shows up drunk. I'm a little bit tipsy myself, so we manage a conversation for a while, and when I ask if she's seeing anybody, she tells me something about, you know, migrating from one dating app to another. She says with a dismissive wave that, you know, it, it's all exhausting and stupid and that, you know, the men are flakes and creeps and cucks. Cuck being short for cuckold. It's her occasional tipsy term for guys who she thinks show no backbone. Rachel, I'll mention again, is, is a progressive person and occasionally when she's drunk she clearly just relishes saying inflammatory shit 
She's also super attracted to to the stoic loser type with like the with the locked jaw. They, she, she's attracted to the kind of guy with lots of tattoos invoking like their life's misfortunes. She likes bearded felons. She likes men who like borrow money from her and criticize her haircut and and call her a bitch for being sad. It's like the only kind of guys who can who can make her come are the sort who make her cry first. Anyway, Rachel is in a bit of a frenzy right now, and she's saying of this dude from last week that, you know, he's a cuck, he's a, he's a loser, he's self-absorbed, he's presumptuous. She goes on about how he's a bitch, he's, how, how he's weak, you know, he, you know that, that the reason he, he won't stick around is because he sees that she's quote-unquote on top of her shit, whereas he still lives at home with his mom and his dad, and, and he works at some office in Hialeah doing mindless shit, he's got no career goals, he's intimidated by her, that's why he's dodging her, whatever. I listen for a while with half an ear, and then eventually just start looking around and, and checking my phone, not bothering to hide the fact that I don't want to hear this fucking delusional rant of hers. But she goes on, and it's fine. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter if I'm listening, or if the person next to her is listening. Because ultimately, Rachel's just telling this to herself. And as a friend, I have a hard time knowing when the thing I'm supposed to do is, you know, shut her down and set her straight, and when I'm just supposed to listen and, and be there while she gets her way through it. It's Friday night, and I'm here at my usual bar, where the news is playing on a TV overhead, and there's a little bar across the screen that says, South Florida Soaked. And, sure enough, it's cats and dogs outside. We're still 90 minutes away from dusk, but the sky's gone completely dark. And down there, at the end of the bar, I see a couple, a man and a woman, who are very much together, and at the same time, somehow very much apart from the rest of the crowd. The music is pulsing as the happy hour crowd funnels in, everybody sort of shaking the rain off of themselves and batting their umbrellas against the floor. They look like they're both here and not here, checking their phones occasionally. I'm looking at them for a long time, and I get a weird vibe about what it is they're doing, or what it is they're expecting. And finally, the way I jot it to myself in a little notebook I keep in my back pocket, is that this young married couple, if that's indeed what they are, they look like they can't tell whether they're doing something with their evening, or waiting for something to happen. Hello? I must be going. I cannot stay. I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. For my sake, you must stay. For if you go away, you'll spoil this party. I am ruined. I'll stay a week or two. I'll stay the summer through, but I am telling you, I must be going. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and to read our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.